Welcome to Catholic Light. Join me, Becca Doherty, each week as we shed a little light while keeping the conversation light. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Catholic Light. On the second half of this week's episode, we'll read paragraphs 1091 through 1121, and we will talk about how we, each and every one of us, are part of a great big plan. Uh, Back in 2008, I traveled with a group of close to 70 people from the Archdiocese of Philadelphia to Sydney, Australia for World Youth Day. So the trip was organized and run by uh, Father Chris Walsh, this wonderful priest from the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. And, um, you know, he gathered at the time he was a chaplain at one of the archdiocesan high schools. I was teaching at another one of the archdiocesan high schools. And so he gathered together, advertised the trip to a couple different high schools and uh, a local youth group. And so a number of people said yes. And we all traveled um, from Philadelphia to Sydney, Australia. The, the trip in and of itself was was quite interesting, quite the pilgrimage. Um, but one of the fun parts was uh, Father Chris would, in getting ready to see Pope Benedict, now Emeritus, Pope Benedict XVI, um, he would do his best Pope Benedict impersonation. So as we traveled to Australia, you know, he would talk about how students, we will gather together to greet the youth of the world. And, um, you know, they thought it was silly. And a lot of the students had not heard Pope Benedict speak yet. So when we finally got to Australia, Pope Emeritus Benedict comes out and greets us. The kids turn to Father Chris and go, oh, my gosh, Father Chris, he sounds just like you. And Father Chris was like, "Um, no, I I sound like him, but thanks. So one of the things that that Pope Pope Benedict said on that World Youth Day trip, and we continued to repeat, and I've continued to hold in my heart and and reflect on since then, is he he in this this sweet German voice addressed you know thousands of people. He said, "Life is not random. Life is not random." And it's so simple, but so beautiful and true that life is not random. Um, I have a friend, Cynthia, who talks about God winks. God winks at you when he, he sends you these little signs. Some people refer to them as, as God incidences instead of coincidences. They're coincidences ordained by God. Um, some people then, however, approach life as though it's all coincidence and, and random. Um, but we believe that, that life is not random, as, as the Pope once said. Um, but we are part of this big, beautiful, great plan ordained by God who has planned it from the beginning of time and um, is walking us through step by step. And as, as some have, have used the analogy, maybe I've used this analogy before, it's like this beautiful orchestra where he is, is the conductor. We are each playing our different instruments. We are free. We are autonomous. Um, but he weaves each note, even discordant notes, back into this great symphony, this big, again, beautiful, great, big plan. Um, and so we'll talk today. There, there's just one paragraph in, the, in today's reading selection, paragraph 1094, which just kind of quickly walks through some of the Old Testament figures or types that foreshadow Christ in the New Testament. And it, it's just really wild. If um, if you've ever done a Bible study, you know this. Um, if not, I encourage you to 
to participate in a Bible study, which links up the Old Testament figures, the Old Testament types, and how they're fulfilled or brought to fruition in Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Just separated by by thousands of years, um, these stories are just uncannily similar. Um, And so we see one of our takeaways from that is that God has been been planning our salvation, planning our, our redemption, and ultimately our happiness from the beginning of time. So I think it's, again, just wild to reflect on the fact that when, when God creates Adam and Eve, he not only knows that, that they will turn against him, um, but that he will send his only begotten son, or we could say the second person of the Trinity, God himself, will, will step into our human timeline to save us. And then we will continue to reject him, but he will continue to reach out to us and bring us back to him again and again and again and invite us to this beautiful life that he has planned for each and every one of us. So today's theme, today's um, discussion is we are part of a great big plan. So we're part of a bigger story, um, which sometimes is easy to forget because we live in an age which other ages have been this way as well, where, where the focus is on autonomy, independence, um, to the point of like, I make my own rules, I write my own story. Um, it's also a very American concept, I think, to pull ourselves up from the bootstraps, you know, carve out our own path. And, um, and these are all good ideas. We are, God makes us to be, you know, independent and free and autonomous. Um, but that's all gift, um, to be used for something bigger, something greater, which is ultimately happiness um, in him as we are only perfectly fulfilled. And so um, I think one of the the downsides of this focus on autonomy and independence is that uh, we often feel like we have to rely on ourselves. So there's, again, an emphasis on self-reliance, self-help, and... Um, while it's often portrayed as like exciting and again, like you carve out your own destiny, I can be overwhelming um, to think that like, ooh, it all depends on me or, you know, if I am unhappy, that's because, you know, I haven't helped myself enough for, you know, my in my self-reliant approach, I haven't like figured out the best way. And so I think it's freeing um, and, again, happiness-inducing to turn to God who wrote the greater story and can help us figure out um, what part we play and to what he is inviting us. Uh, Bishop Barron, whom I often reference on this podcast, he talks about the ego drama versus the theodrama. And he says that the, the ego drama is the play that I write, I direct, and I star in. And again, well, it's fun to be center stage or maybe the only person on the stage and get all the attention um, because we're finite creatures and because we are scarred by original sin, we're, um, you know, self-absorbed and and tend towards um, sinful things. It's a very small story on a small stage with a small audience. But if we participate in the theodrama, um, the drama that God has, has written has put together, um, and to which he invites each of us to play play a part. It's much more exciting, and um, it, it, it's bigger. It's it expands and and goes out. Rather than turning in on ourselves, we look out on again this great, big, beautiful story. 
So let's turn to paragraph 1094 and just talk a little bit about how that story begins in the Old Testament and then unfolds in the New Testament and now continues to unfold for each and every one of us throughout salvation history. So paragraph 1094 says, it is on this harmony of the two testaments that the Paschal Catechesis, so we talked about the the Paschal Mystery or the Passion, Death, Resurrection, and Ascension of Jesus Christ. So the Paschal Catechesis of the Lord is built. So this catechesis or teaching of the Lord's Passion, Death, Resurrection, and Ascension. And then skipping a little bit, it says, This catechesis unveils what lay hidden under the letter of the Old Testament, the mystery of Christ. It is called typological because it reveals the newness of Christ on the basis of the figures or types which announce him in the deeds, words, and symbols of the first covenant. So the first covenant is between Yahweh, God, and the Israelites, the chosen people. By this rereading in the spirit of truth, starting from Christ, the figures are unveiled. Thus, the flood and Noah's ark prefigured salvation by baptism, as did the cloud and the crossing of the Red Sea. Water from the rock was the figure of the spiritual gifts of Christ, and manna in the desert prefigured the Eucharist, the true bread from heaven. So here the catechism just kind of quickly skips through some of the Old Testament types or figures and how they foreshadow, prefigure uh, Jesus Christ and fulfillment in the second person of the Trinity, God himself. Just a few weekends ago, um, a bunch of us, family and friends, came together for my my youngest brother Matthew's wedding. And uh, one of his childhood friends, Jake, who is Jewish, uh, was one of the groomsmen. And uh, he was recounting how growing up my mom would, would put her hands on his face and just, you know, lovingly shake him and say, Jake, we owe our Catholicism to you. <laughs> he would kind of laugh and be like, thanks, Mrs. Fine. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, but it's true. Our, our Catholicism, Christianity, is built on the foundation of Judaism. So we could say there are our, our big brothers and sisters in the faith where the, the Israelites, the Jews, the chosen people received that covenant first from God, and then that covenant was opened up to include all of us. Um, so we were, were grafted onto the first covenant or invited into that, that beautiful first covenant God made with his people. And when God made that covenant with his people, he had each and every one of us in mind. Um, and I don't mean that in a corny way. You know, some people will say, like, if you were the only person alive, Jesus would have suffered and died for you. Okay, which which comes across sometimes as, like, cheesy or trite. Um, but it's true. If you were the only person, uh, God would have suffered and died for you. And um, he would have, you know, had the scriptures written for you. If you were the only person, I guess you would be the one writing the scriptures and then reading the scriptures. Um but this whole this whole plan includes each and every one of us. God had each and every one of us in mind, and so um, sometimes when we walk through the the Old Testament stories, or even here talk about how the Old Testament leads to the New Testament, sometimes it's um, you know might come across as like dry or you know that's a Bible study, that's a scripture study, but it's it, it's very personal. It's it's written for each of us and part of a plan that God had in mind for each of us. So like the catechism just went through um, how Noah's Ark and the flood prefigured baptism. So the the church is often referred to as the 
the ship or the bark that carries us through salvation history. So that that ark saved the people um, when the the world was cleansed by. So there was much you know sin going on at the time of Noah. The Lord cleansed the world, literally and metaphorically, by the flood waters. In baptism, the church, the ship carries us into these waters where by which we are cleansed of original sin. The catechism also just referenced the manna in the desert. So think back to when the Jews have have left Egypt, they're wandering back to the promised land and they're in the the desert for many years. God provides for them this this manna, this bread on which they can feed, be nourished and strengthened and continue on their journey. This prefigures or is a type for the Eucharist in the New Testament and now today as part of our salvation history. God provides us literally with this bread, um, which is transformed into his body that then feeds and nourishes us, gives us strength for the journey, God willing, all the way to heaven. A couple other Old Testament types. One of my favorites uh, comes from the second book of Samuel. It's when King David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. So recall the Ark of the Covenant is this big, beautiful, gold-covered box, essentially, which holds um, the Ten Commandments, so the stone tablets. It holds Aaron, the priest, uh, who is also Moses's brother, his rod or staff, and then this pot of manna, um, this special bread that that brought the Jews through the desert. So this Ark of the Covenant, many know it thanks to Indiana Jones and uh, the, you know, the crusaders who look for this, this lost Ark. Um, the Ark of the Covenant holds uh, these very important things to the Jews, and um, the Jews believe that the, the presence of God rested on this Ark. So King David brings the ark back into Jerusalem, and as it's being brought into Jerusalem, he dances before it uh, to the point where one of his wives, Michal, is is ashamed that he's dancing just so wildly and exuberantly, um, just flailing about. He's so so excited and happy that that God, the presence of God, is coming back into Jerusalem, and he rejoices with dance. While this foreshadows or is a type for when the new Ark of the Covenant, so no longer this this gold box, but um, this woman made of flesh and blood, the Blessed Mother, who is now the house of or holds within her uh, the presence of God. So when Jesus is in her womb, she, the new Ark of the Covenant, brings the presence of God to her cousin Elizabeth. And John the Baptist, who is within Elizabeth, dances before the Ark of the Covenant. So scripture says uh, in the Gospel of Luke that uh, St. John the Baptist leapt in Elizabeth's womb. Elizabeth feels him and says, you know, this child leapt within my womb as you came into my presence. So in the Old Testament, King David dances before the Ark of the Covenant. In the New Testament, John the Baptist dances or leaps in the womb before the Ark of the New Covenant, before Jesus within Mary's womb. Just such a cool, cool figure. Um, Another one that I like, which is like a little strange or kind of weird, which my my best friend Teresa periodically will say, like, Catholics, like, we're kind of weird sometimes (laughs) when you think about things like um, we were talking one day about the the incorruptibles, incorrupt saints. Um, So a number of saints, if you're not familiar with this, a number of saints who have died um, 
their their bodies have not decayed or not decayed to the point where they should have decayed. So, for example, St. Bernadette of Subaru, um, if you go to Nevers, France, she's in this glass coffin, and she looks perfect. She, I saw her when I studied abroad. Um, she looks like she could sit up and start talking to you. Uh, St. Rita of Cascia in Cascia, Italy, is also considered an incorruptible. Um, she looks little crispy doesn't look doesn't look quite as uh as fresh as saint bernadette but um given how long she has been dead um it's miraculous that her body is still intact um so it's it's one of those so as my friend teresa says it's it's kind of one of those like weird and wild things about catholicism it's like very cool but in a way that's like hmm that's like kind of strange but cool i'm intrigued but this is weird so one of these old testament types that i think is like cool but weird is the story of Jonah in the belly of the whale. So kind of weird that this guy like lived in the belly of a whale for three days, but this is an Old Testament type or prefiguration of Christ. Uh, after he dies, suffers and dies on the cross, we believe that he descends to the dead or this dark underworld um, to preach to those who had died prior to his his death. Um, he goes, descends to the dead. We pray this in the Apostles' Creed. Descends to the dead and preaches to everyone who had died before him. And then when he resurrects, they too, like each and every one of us in our judgment day, decide, you know, Christ, we're, we're for you or against you or with you or we're not. So Old Testament, Jonah in the darkness, the depths of the belly of the whale, prefigures Jesus going to the darkness, the depths of the underworld. Um, last prefiguration, I mean, there is a ton. And again, if, if you haven't done so, I encourage you to participate in a Bible study or maybe do a little reading on your own of how these Old Testament types prefigure Christ in the New Testament. So one more, um, you might be familiar from the book of Numbers when the Israelites are complaining um, and murmuring against God because they, again, are are wandering in the desert, you know, having been set free from from their slavery in Egypt, um, when they're complaining and murmuring against God in order to discipline them or say like, okay, let's go, guys, um, God allows them to be bitten by these poisonous snakes. And then he tells Moses to raise a bronze serpent on a pole and the, all those who look on this bronze serpent elevated above them will be healed of these from these poisonous snake bites. So this is a prefiguring of Christ being raised on the cross. All those who look upon him and you know give their their hearts and souls to him are saved from the poison of sin and ultimate ultimately death or eternal death. So um, I go through the, this list and I focus on this paragraph of the catechism to say that these, these stories written thousands of years, hundreds of years, many years apart from each other um, just uncannily have similarities or the Old Testament stories beautifully prepare for this New, New Testament revelation of Jesus Christ. And so it's a great reminder as we as we study these things, as we talk about these things, we learn about these things, pray about these things, to remember that that this story is not something distant and, you know, dusty, but something of which we are a part. It's a, it's a story that continues, um, that's going on right now, and, and God has invited each and every one of us to be a part of that. 
So while we might not be called to raise up bronze serpents on, you know, poles to heal people or or even to be, you know, one of these incorrupt saints that people travel far and wide to, to visit, each of us plays a part in this theodrama. Each of us is a part of of the story of salvation history. And um, that that story continues as we've been talking about and as we focus on in part two through the sacraments. So the, those Old Testament types were prefiguring, gearing up for the Paschal mystery. So the, the passion or suffering, death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, which then happened. But that event, those events and that mystery merited this, this infinite abundance of grace, which continues to be poured out day in, day out for each and every one of us through the seven sacraments. And what we can take advantage of um, each and every day are the, the sacraments of the Eucharist, so receiving Jesus in the Eucharist and going to him in confession. As we participate in this theodrama, um, you know, we don't, we don't see, so, sometimes we get those, those God winks, we see those God incidences, we see um, how our life is being touched by God, and we see how our life is touching the lives of others. But we don't see the fullness, of, we, we might not get that at all, um, and we certainly don't see the fullness of it, this side of heaven. Um, but, again, looking at how um, God orchestrated things so beautifully in the Old Testament, and how it was beautifully, is beautifully connected to what went on in the New Testament, uh, we believe that that God doesn't then close the Bible and say, like, eh, good luck with the rest, <laughs> the rest of you people. But he continues to work that intimately and specifically and beautifully um, with each and every one of us. Um, I've been thinking, I don't know why, I've been thinking lately about the story of the starfish, and you might be be familiar with this story where um, someone came up on, uh, was walking along the, the ocean and walking along the beach, excuse me, and I uh, came upon this little boy who was throwing um, starfish back into the ocean. So a bunch of starfish had washed up on the shore and this little boy was was throwing them back one by one as best he could. And the the gentleman walking along the beach, you know, asked this little boy, what are you doing? He said, you know, they're not going to survive out here. I got to throw them back in. And the gentleman said um, kindly, but a little condescendingly, you know, um, you're not going to be able to get them all back in the ocean. Uh, there's so many of them, you know, what 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 difference are you, are you going to make by doing this? You're expending so much energy. Um, you know, what, what difference is it really going to make? And the little boy looked up at him and said, for that starfish that I just threw back into the ocean, it's going to make a world of difference. And I was like, dang. So I think that the story is used to illustrate the fact that um, sometimes it's very overwhelming when you look at what's going on in the world. And it's easy to think like, what can I really do to make a difference? But, um, you know, whether it's one life or a or hundred lives or a thousand lives or or again, just one life uh, that you affect, that life is is infinitely affected, could be infinitely affected um, by your life. And so we go to the sacraments to receive the graces, not just for ourselves, but um, for those lives that, that God willing we touch and are part of the, the great big story um, as well, the great big story of salvation history. Um, so there, 
again, it's, you know, it sounds cheesy to say, like, if you were the only person, God would have died for just for you. Uh, it's true. And, um, you know, there's, there's only one of you and God wants to work in and through you and in a, a specific way uh, as part of this, this great big plan. So let's end with uh, that beautiful both-end mentality that Catholicism embraces. Um, on the one hand, there is only one of us, uh, only one Becca Doherty, only one Marilyn Mastretta, one Celia Mastretta, one Margie Quigley, one Fiorella Garcia de Heron, one Trevor Durbin. Um, you can see I'm giving, giving shout-outs to my, uh, my friends here, my friends and listeners. Um, I would say there's only one Becca Pine, but there's actually two now. So my, my maiden name is Pine. So growing up, I was Becca Pine, and it has such a ring to it that so many people would just call me Becca Pine to the point where my husband Dan and I were in high school together, so he knew me as Becca Pine. Even though I'm now Dan Doherty, I bear his last name, he still refers to me as Becca Pine. Um, my brother Matthew, whom I just mentioned, who recently got married, married a Rebecca who goes by Becca. So she too now is Becca Pine. Um, but uh, she she bears it well. So so Becca, welcome to the family. You're a, a beautiful Becca Pine, and um, I'm happy to share a name with you. Um, so so on the one hand, with this, as we we think about this both and mentality, there, there's only one of us, each and every one of us in salvation history. And we each play our part um, by the grace of God beautifully and well. Um, on the other hand, we are just a, a small part in a great big story, um, which is is humbling. Uh, so the the ego drama is, uh, or excuse me, the theodrama is more humbling than the ego drama, but it is big and beautiful. And I think. Uh, consoling to know that we're, that we're part of something greater, that it doesn't depend on us. It's not up to us. God has a, a great big plan. And by turning to him, we come to to know and realize and and live out that plan um, so as to achieve the, the beautiful happiness he has for each and every one of us. And just like he suffered and died for each of us as though each of us were the only one in the world, he continues to pour out graces and the sacraments for each and every one of us. I I imagine we could say the same about the sacraments. If if I were the only person in the world, God would have instituted the sacraments so that he could pour out his grace upon me um, to receive that, that grace and that blessedness. So as we go forth, uh, as we wrap up this first half of the episode and, and go forth, um, let's take advantage again of uh, the sacraments, especially the sacraments of the Eucharist, uh, where we can be nourished, fed, strengthened, um, on the, the body of God himself and uh, go to the sacrament of confession where we can be purified, um, also strengthened, and uh, just let down the, those burdens that we carry around with us because God has planned from all of, all of eternity to strengthen, nourish, purify, bless, um, and ultimately make us happy in him. So we'll, we'll end there, take a brief break, and then return on the second half of the episode to read paragraphs 1091 through 1121. Thanks for sticking with me. You are listening to Catholic Light. 
Thank you for joining me each week as we read through the Catechism of the Catholic Church and discuss some of its beautiful teachings. Hi, and welcome back. We'll now read paragraphs 1091 through 1121 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. The Holy Spirit and the Church in the Liturgy. In the liturgy, the Holy Spirit is teacher of the faith of the people of God and artisan of God's masterpieces, the sacraments of the new covenant. The desire and work of the Spirit in the heart of the church is that we may live from the life of the risen Christ. When the Spirit encounters in us the response of faith, which he has aroused in us, he brings about genuine cooperation. Through it, the liturgy becomes the common work of the Holy Spirit and the church. In this sacramental dispensation of Christ's mystery, the Holy Spirit acts in the same way as at other times in the economy of salvation. He prepares the church to encounter her Lord. He recalls and makes Christ manifest to the faith of the assembly. By his transforming power, he makes the mystery of Christ present here and now. Finally, the spirit of communion unites the church to the life and mission of Christ. The Holy Spirit prepares for the reception of Christ. In the sacramental economy, the Holy Spirit fulfills what was prefigured in the Old Covenant. Since Christ's church was prepared in marvelous fashion in the history of the people of Israel and in the Old Covenant, the church's liturgy has retained certain elements of the worship of the Old Covenant as integral and irreplaceable, adopting them as her own. Notably, reading the Old Testament, praying the Psalms, Above all, recalling the saving events and significant realities which have found their fulfillment in the mystery of Christ, promise and covenant, exodus and Passover, kingdom and temple, exile and return. It is on this harmony of the two testaments that the Paschal Catechesis of the Lord is built, and then that of the apostles and the fathers of the church. This catechesis unveils what lay hidden under the letter of the Old Testament, the mystery of Christ. It is called typological because it reveals the newness of Christ on the basis of the figures or types which announce him in the deeds, words, and symbols of the first covenant. By this rereading in the spirit of truth, starting from Christ, the figures are unveiled. Thus, the flood and Noah's ark prefigured salvation by baptism, as did the cloud and the crossing of the Red Sea. Water from the rock was the figure of the spiritual gifts of Christ, and manna in the desert prefigured the Eucharist, the true bread from heaven. For this reason, the Church, especially during Advent and Lent, and above all at the Easter Vigil, rereads and relives the great events of salvation history in the today of her liturgy. But this also demands that catechesis help the faithful to open themselves to the spiritual understanding of the economy of salvation as the Church's liturgy reveals it and enables us to live it. Jewish Liturgy and Christian Liturgy a better knowledge of the Jewish people's faith and religious life as professed and lived even now can help our better understanding of certain aspects of Christian liturgy. For both Jews and Christians, sacred scripture is an essential part of their respective liturgies. In the proclamation of the word of God, the response to this word, prayer of praise and intercession for the living and the dead, invocation of God's mercy. In its characteristic structure, the liturgy of the word originates in Jewish prayer. The Liturgy of the Hours and other liturgical texts and formularies, as well as those of our most venerable prayers, including the Lord's Prayer, have parallels in Jewish prayer. The Eucharistic prayers also draw their inspiration from the Jewish tradition, the relationship between Jewish liturgy and Christian liturgy, but also their differences in content, 
are particularly evident in the great feasts of the liturgical year, such as Passover. Christians and Jews both celebrate the Passover. For Jews, it is the Passover of history, tending toward the future. For Christians, it is the Passover fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Christ, though always in expectation of its definitive consummation. In the liturgy of the New Covenant, every liturgical action, especially the celebration of the Eucharist and the sacraments, is an encounter between Christ and the Church. The liturgical assembly derives its unity from the communion of the Holy Spirit, who gathers the children of God into the one body of Christ. This assembly transcends racial, cultural, social, indeed all human affinities. The assembly should prepare itself to encounter its Lord and to become a people well-disposed, The preparation of hearts is the joint work of the Holy Spirit and the assembly, especially of its ministers. The grace of the Holy Spirit seeks to awaken faith, conversion of heart, and adherence to the Father's will. These dispositions are the precondition both for the reception of other graces conferred in the celebration itself and the fruits of new life which the celebration is intended to produce afterward. The Holy Spirit recalls the mystery of Christ. The Spirit and the Church cooperate to manifest Christ and His work of salvation in the liturgy. Primarily in the Eucharist and by analogy in the other sacraments, the liturgy is the memorial of the mystery of salvation. The Holy Spirit is the Church's living memory. The Word of God The Holy Spirit first recalls the meaning of the salvation event to the liturgical assembly by giving life to the Word of God which is proclaimed so that it may be received and lived. In the celebration of the liturgy, sacred scripture is extremely important. From it come the lessons that are read and explained in the homily and the psalms that are sung. It is from the scriptures that the prayers, collects, and hymns draw their inspiration and their force, and that actions and signs derive their meaning. The Holy Spirit gives a spiritual understanding of the word of God to those who read or hear it according to the dispositions of their hearts. By means of the words, actions, and symbols that form the structure of a celebration, the Spirit puts both the faithful and the ministers into a living relationship with Christ, the Word and image of the Father, so that they can live out the meaning of what they hear, contemplate, and do in the celebration. By the saving Word of God, faith is nourished in the hearts of believers. By this faith, then, the congregation of the faithful begins and grows. The proclamation does not stop with a teaching— It elicits the response of faith as consent and commitment, directed at the covenant between God and his people. Once again, it is the Holy Spirit who gives the grace of faith, strengthens it, and makes it grow in the community. The liturgical assembly is first of all a communion in faith. Anamnesis. The liturgical celebration always refers to God's saving interventions in history. The economy of revelation is realized by deeds and words which are intrinsically bound up with each other. The words for their part proclaim the works and bring to light the mystery they contain. In the liturgy of the word, the Holy Spirit recalls to the assembly all that Christ has done for us. In keeping with the nature of liturgical actions and the ritual traditions of the churches, the celebration makes a remembrance of the marvelous works of God in an anamnesis which may be more or less developed. The Holy Spirit, who thus awakens the memory of the church, then inspires thanksgiving and praise, or doxology. The Holy Spirit makes present the mystery of Christ. Christian liturgy not only recalls the events that saved us, but actualizes them, makes them present. The Paschal mystery of Christ is celebrated, not repeated. 
It is the celebrations that are repeated, and in each celebration, there's an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that makes the unique mystery present. The epiclesis, or invocation upon, is the intercession in which the priest begs the Father to send the Holy Spirit, the sanctifier, so that the offerings may become the body and blood of Christ, and that the faithful, by receiving them, may themselves become a living offering to God. Together with the anamnesis, the epiclesis is at the heart of each sacramental celebration, most especially in the Eucharist. You ask how the bread becomes the body of Christ and the wine the blood of Christ. I shall tell you, the Holy Spirit comes upon them and accomplishes what surpasses every word and thought. Let it be enough for you to understand that it is by the Holy Spirit, just as it was of the Holy Virgin, and by the Holy Spirit that the Lord, through and in himself, took flesh. The Holy Spirit's transforming power in the liturgy hastens the coming of the kingdom and the consummation of the mystery of salvation. While we wait in hope, he causes us really to anticipate the fullness of communion with the Holy Trinity. Sent by the Father who hears the epiclesis of the Church, the Spirit gives life to those who accept him and is, even now, the guarantee of their inheritance. The Communion of the Holy Spirit In every liturgical action, the Holy Spirit is sent in order to bring us into communion with Christ and so to form his body. The Holy Spirit is like the sap of the Father's vine, which bears fruit on its branches. The most intimate cooperation of the Holy Spirit and the Church is achieved in the liturgy. The Spirit, who is the Spirit of Communion, abides indefectibly in the Church. For this reason, the Church is the great sacrament of divine communion, which gathers God's scattered children together. Communion with the Holy Trinity and fraternal communion are inseparably the fruit of the Spirit in the liturgy. The epiclesis is also a prayer for the full effect of the Assembly's communion with the mystery of Christ. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit have to remain with us always and bear fruit beyond the Eucharistic celebration. The Church, therefore, asks the Father to send the Holy Spirit to make the lives of the faithful a living sacrifice to God by their spiritual transformation into the image of Christ, by concern for the Church's unity, and by taking part in their mission through the witness and service of charity. In brief, in the liturgy of the Church, God the Father is blessed and adored as the source of all the blessings of creation and salvation with which he has blessed us in his Son, in order to give us the spirit of filial adoption. Christ's work in the liturgy is sacramental, because his mystery of salvation is made present there by the power of his Holy Spirit, because his body, which is the Church, is like a sacrament, sign, and instrument, in which the Holy Spirit dispenses the mystery of salvation, and because through her liturgical actions, the Pilgrim Church already participates as by a foretaste in the heavenly liturgy. The mission of the Holy Spirit in the liturgy of the Church is to prepare the assembly to encounter Christ, to recall and manifest Christ to the faith of the assembly, to make the saving work of Christ present and active by His transforming power, and to make the gift of communion bear fruit in the Church. Article 2. The Paschal Mystery in the Church's Sacraments The whole liturgical life of the Church revolves around the Eucharistic sacrifice and the sacraments. There are seven sacraments in the Church— Baptism, Confirmation or Chrismation, Eucharist, Penance, Anointing of the Sick, Holy Orders, and Matrimony. This article will discuss what is common to the Church's seven sacraments from a doctrinal point of view. What is common to them in terms of their celebration will be presented in the second chapter, and what is distinctive about each will be the topic of the section two. The Sacraments of Christ. 
Adhering to the teachings of the Holy Scriptures, to the apostolic traditions, and to the consensus of the fathers, we profess that the sacraments of the new law were all instituted by Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus' words and actions during his hidden life and public ministry were already salvific, for they anticipated the power of his paschal mystery. They announced and prepared what he was going to give the church when all was accomplished. The mysteries of Christ's life are the foundations of what he would henceforth dispense in the sacraments, through the ministers of his church, for what was visible in our Savior has passed over into his mysteries. Sacraments are powers that come that comes forth from the body of Christ, which is ever-living and life-giving. They are actions of the Holy Spirit at work in his body, the church. They are the masterworks of God in the new and everlasting covenant. The Sacraments of the Church As she has done for the canon of sacred scripture and for the doctrine of the faith, the church, by the power of the Spirit who guides her into all truth, has gradually recognized this treasure received from Christ and, as the faithful steward of God's mysteries, has determined its dispensation. Thus the Church has discerned over the centuries that among liturgical celebrations there are seven that are, in the strict sense of the term, sacraments instituted by the Lord. The sacraments are of the Church in the double sense that they are by her and for her. They are by the Church, for she is the sacrament of Christ's action at work in her through the mission of the Holy Spirit. They are for the church in the sense that the sacraments make the church, since they manifest and communicate to men, above all in the Eucharist, the mystery of communion with the God who is love, one in three persons. Forming, as it were, one mystical person with Christ the head, the church acts in the sacraments as an organically structured priestly community. Through baptism and confirmation, the priestly people is enabled to celebrate the liturgy, while those of the faithful who have received holy orders are appointed to nourish the church with the word and grace of God in the name of Christ. The ordained ministry or ministerial priesthood is at the service of the baptismal priesthood. The ordained priesthood guarantees that it really is Christ who acts in the sacraments through the Holy Spirit for the church. The saving mission entrusted by the Father to his incarnate Son was committed to the apostles and through them to their successors. They received the Spirit of Jesus to act in his name and in his person. The ordained minister is a sacramental bond that ties the liturgical action to what the apostles said and did, and through them to the words and actions of Christ, the source and foundation of the sacraments. The three sacraments of baptism, confirmation, and holy orders confer, in addition to grace, a sacramental character or seal by which the Christian shares in Christ's priesthood and is made a member of the church according to different states and functions. This configuration to Christ and to the Church, brought about by the Spirit, is indelible. It remains forever in the Christian as a positive disposition for grace, a promise and guarantee of divine protection, and as a vocation to divine worship and to the service of the Church. Therefore, these sacraments can never be repeated. This brings us to the end of our reading selection and the end of our episode for the week. Thanks so much for joining me. Between this week and next week's episode, please connect with me on Instagram at Catholic Light Podcast. And please pray for me as I'll be praying for you. In the meantime, God bless you. Thanks for joining me this week on Catholic Light. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with your family and your friends. And connect with me through Facebook and Instagram. I'll see you next week. And in the meantime, God bless you.